You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Okay, welcome back to the Limited Upside podcast. I'm Ben. I'm here with Mike. Mike, are you there? I am here. I think this is a uh, two and a half years since we last recorded. You <laughs> yeah, know, we, just we took a little hiatus. <laughs> one of us went to follow pursuits in uh, minor league baseball, and the other one mm-hmm. had, um, you know, a little bit of a, a layoff to create a family. But here we are. You know, we're we're doing podcasts again. I'm stuffed in a tiny closet in Brooklyn, which is a microcosm of my life right now. I can't leave Brooklyn and I feel like I'm in confined spaces all the time. Mm-hmm. And Mike, you are living in a plush, uh, expansive um, <laughs> part, part of the island. And, uh, you know, we're, we're not going to be in the same office together, maybe for a long time. Who knows? Maybe but forever. Maybe forever. We'll, we'll, we'll touch see. on that. We'll, see. And Mike, we'll, we'll touch on that. But right now, Mike, <laughs> you and I, and I'm going to plug this immediately because it's important to understand the reason why we're here is that you have a new venture that you've just jumped into. We're putting this podcast on Prada's Pictures, Substack. Tell us a little bit about that, what you're doing with it, and then we'll get into our conversation where Mike and I are going to talk about, well, the only topic there is right now, which is we're going to talk about 90s basketball and 80s basketball, some eras of the game, how it compares to today through a little bit of a different lens because you actually have been watching thousands of hours of 80s, 90s, 2000s basketball. Hey, and then you got me addicted Let's go with thousands. Ten thousand hours. Uh, <laughs> one trillion hours. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, here, here I am. You got me addicted to watching these, like, prior to whatever was before HD, whatever was before that, games on YouTube. So yeah. my eyes my eyes have all but fallen apart. Uh, and so that's good. And um, I sometimes I can tell the difference between Charles Barkley and um, and Dumas uh, on, Dumas. on the Suns. <laughs> yep. Otherwise, they look the same uh, to me. Um, but... Uh, no, Mike, tell me, tell me about your Substack. Tell us about Paredes Pictures, what the idea behind it is. Give me the elevator on it, and then we'll dive into this conversation where you already have content on the Substack that pertains to the conversation we're going to have. Yeah, so obviously the bad news is that I, I along with many of the other members of the ESPNation.com staff, were furloughed for three months. Uh, our futures are kind of uncertain even if we come back. You know, the whole climate is kind of weird, and you know, I, I'm not sure we know what's going on. So I started a my own newsletter, which is basically going to take what I've done for praise pictures written-wise and just sort of put that there and then also bring back this podcast once a week, mm-hmm. as, and that's the venture. You know, I, I think for a decade almost, you know, I've tried to write pieces that break down basketball but aren't, like, too technical. I think, you know, I, the original thing, the original tagline I had was X's and O's for average Joes, which sounds a little patronizing. <laughs> but, you know, I, I just think a lot of writing, technical writing is just too technical. And I want to try to write in a way that brings it to life, has visuals, but doesn't overly rely on the visuals um, and make it so that they're 
showing what's happening on the court is like a fundamental part of storytelling and not just a niche type of post. So interesting. That's kind of the idea. Um, cool. It's not that different than what I've always done. I just sort of, I don't know. That's, I'm like, I'm not a coach. I'm not, uh, you know, I'm an, I'm an expert in that I watch a lot of games. I wouldn't say like I'm like kind of smarter about this stuff than people who are in the league. I just think I try to make it so that it's like easier for the average fan to appreciate. So that's the hope. We'll see how well I do. But I, I think all the stuff that you used to read from me, um, Especially this year, now that I was writing, is just going to go on there. We're going to do one of the one deep breakdown a week, one podcast a week, both for free, and anything else which we'll probably add on. You can subscribe for ten dollars a month or hundred dollars a year, or but if you do before May fifteenth, you get fifty percent off. So I know we've had a number of people who have already subscribed, paid subscribers. Thank you so much. We also got a lot of people kind of checking this thing out for free. And I'm hoping that, you know, maybe this will last for three months. Maybe this will last forever. I don't know. Lovely. Hey, man, I'm, I'm excited to see the content you're creating. If everyone wants to know the first uh, piece that Mike put out is when Scotty became MJ's equal. Uh, it's a great breakdown of, of basically how starting with how the Bulls got past the Pistons and a lot of that had more to do in many ways with Scotty than it did with Michael. And I think you did a, a crazy good job of, of again, visually, uh, um, you know, showing us this, but as well as kind of filling in the blanks with, you have your own point of view. And I would also argue, Mike, you are an expert in this exact type of MBA, uh, uh knowledge, which is to say no one breaks down film in as, as an intelligible way. Um, whether that's people we know who used to be on, you know, the film teams at, or film teams of uh, coaches, uh, benches, you know, for different teams. A film oh, teams. You're right there with them. A film teams. A film team. teams. I like that. The video guys, uh, yeah. the assistant coaches, if you will. Um, and so, um, yeah, I'm excited for it, man. And, and again, yeah. I think, you know, in general, everyone should go try to support these former SB Nation folks. They're all in their own pockets doing great work, whether that's on you know, the NBA draft to come, the WNBA, uh, the world of soccer that's going to get started up again shortly in a few weeks with the Bundesliga. Uh, or folks like yourself, Mike, who just have your, a unique point of view and a way of storytelling that uh, is special for the sports space. So Let's I'm excited hope. to see what you do. Let's hope, mm-hmm. you know, so... I want I wanted to talk to you about um, because of the other piece that the second piece that I put up on the site is uh, taking a look at sort of the Seattle SuperSonics of the '90s and the way they defended and how there are a lot of commonalities to how a couple teams will defend today. They were sort of weirdly ahead of their time, you hmm. know. And it, it got me thinking about something that I know I kind of wanted to ask you about and sort of talk about, which is how different is basketball now to what it was let's say starting let's say from the jordan era and before so like late late 80s into let's now? say yeah let, let's say sort of the the, the so-called golden era of basketball the late 80s into like kind of the end of jordan's run which is you know we're cool. seeing in the last dance and you know i've watched a lot of games from that period and i i'm kind of conflicted about whether I mean, obviously, it's very different. I'm kind of conflicted on how different and what is different <laughs> about it. Well, so let's start. Let's start there with with the what is most different. You just said you've watched tons of basketball. I have an opinion on this. I promise everyone. <laughs> I've got opinion. I've got opinions on. Well, yeah, you have an on opinion. Everything. You have an opinion I've on been, like sort of yeah. what color the sky is outside. That's right. That's right. It's, that's that's my shade of blue, man. And so that's the thing. Like I, I've been sitting on thoughts about the actual NBA that's been going on for two and a half years since we've done this podcast. I think the last time we recorded was literally like Dwayne Wade's retirement week. Okay, and not not like the four 
days where the heat retired him his number like the oh, actual yeah. times when he stopped yes. playing basketball <laughs> not right. the not the weekend that seemed to last forever <laughs> right right not not the uh the seven day extravaganza uh down in miami um this past year or whatever but um yeah so it's been a while and i've been sitting on a lot of thoughts and and ultimately this season has been uh, you know well you know what screw it we'll get into the regular the actual basketball that's happening here in another podcast and my actual basketball i mean the season in 2019 2020 um my first thing that jumps out at me and like let's start here the overall skill level compared to the size of the human being that's the ratio that keeps sticking out at me the idea of constructs of size is unavoidable for me when i watch games from the 80s and 90s and i should tell everyone i've watched like 65 or 70 different games, not uh, about them? 45, about 45. I'm using your list, man. I mean, you've made this color coded. Oh yeah. YouTube that, or Google it's not document a, for it's me. not a public list, but it may, it may <laughs> go, we may put it behind the paywall one day. Let's just say it's like the Magna Carta of YouTube color coded basketball games. Uh, <laughs> and I've watched quite a few. Um, and what was the, last, what was the most recent one you watched? Uh, most recent was game seven of the 1993 Western conference finals between the Sonics and Suns. Ooh, good one. Good one. It was Sonics fans think that the rest kind of screwed them. Uh, the Suns, well, they're not, they're not wrong. The first half specifically, the Sonics got like (laughs) four or five really bad calls. Um, Kevin Johnson was out of control and jumping into people the whole game. He was pretty, pretty sporadic in that game. Charles Um, Barkley was a monster in that one. Charles was a monster. I mean, that was... You know, I'm not going to say it was peak Charles. The best Charles highlights are from the 80s when he was legitimately a, a train uh, yeah. you know, coming off the tracks. But so, by so, 93, he had a good idea of his body. But anyhow, that was the last game I watched. And okay. when I watched this, the era of the call, late 80s, early 90s, big men were big men. Guards were guards. Most teams started three solidified what I would consider almost like power forward skill sets. I tried to think of um, Jordan went against uh, Pistons team at literally played four power forwards uh, if not you know two centers two power forwards together at times uh, Wait, who's the same four thing the four? Going, say again so dennis rodman was a three yeah. a lot of the time you would have considered he would be a four or five obviously so today. that's right then lambeer mahorn and sally all played a oh, lot sally, you know? and I mean, james edwards as well yeah, yeah i mean the thing that stands out to me is that that's different is that and also just like everybody's standing way far further away from the basket like where they're standing is such a huge it's absurd. It's crazy. I mean, they, they're basically using twice the amount of space that they ever used before. They're just all – everybody nowadays is standing way back because yeah. they are shooting. And, you know, when you talk about the skill too, it's – it's um that's why I thought the Sonics are so unique in the way they play. Like they were as positionless as any team was those days. But generally speaking, it was pretty positionally rigid. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, it's it's – I, it's pretty funny like kind of i was watching the last game i watched was a blazer spurs game from the 1990 playoffs and like <laughs> there's nobody on the spurs that's standing beyond the three-point line like ever right. they're curling right. in and shooting 13 footers <laughs> it's like I mean, really look, it's really jarring the analytics of what's a valuable shot you know obviously those were not things that were being considered uh in the 80s and 90s but i, I mean I'm, I'm talking about even um you can draw this through the late nineties into the early two thousands. Um, 
yeah, shit, you could draw this up in, into uh, even the Pistons team, you know, the, the 2000 Pistons, whatever, 2003, four, whatever the team was that won the championship. Like, they ostensibly yeah. did it with a couple guys who could hit threes and a lot of mid-range jump shots. Um, yeah. You know, because Hamilton and Sheed were some of the best mid-range jump shooters in, in the entire NBA. But And Billups, obviously, is a great shooter from, from range as well. Um, but, man, like, when I mean, like, um, skill sets fit the size – I mean, like Detlef Shrimp, when we talk about the Sonics, like that was a guy who might have transferable skills to playing a stretch three or four, almost like a Dario Saric type right. guy, not to undersell Detlef Shrimp for the era he played in. He was a much better player than Dario Saric. Yeah. But the idea is like he stretched the limits of that three, four. A like a Danilo bit, Gallinari type of player. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. And and so I think about the era, I think of a lot of guys who were fit into a position for the size they were, who, you know, I'm, I'm watching the Blazers. Uh, I watched the Blazers Lakers um, game seven from 1990 series where the Lakers end up going to the NBA finals or 90-91 series, yeah. I should say. Yeah. Yep. Game six. I apologize with the with the Lakers closed out and magic posted up. About 50 times that game. Yeah. The Lakers and, were like the kings of post ups. I find that the way I think about it is that over time in the 90s the emphasis was on shooting over people <laughs> yeah, being more right. physical like kind of getting as close to where you to the hoop as you could and like kind of that was the skill set and nowadays the game is about getting by people and it's yeah, about it's it, in a lot of ways basketball has gone closer to resembling soccer whereas in the past it resembled football more often it was more of a trench warfare game in the past and you can see with how the people are built like i i've long had this series so i've thought to myself a lot like why mm-hmm. didn't more teams shoot threes back in the day you know and the one thing that i think is overlooked that may be a huge factor and it's impossible to separate the chicken and the egg here is i don't think those guys had the body types to shoot that from that far away that accurately you know they were Big up top, big uh, core work was not emphasized in that day, you know. Mm-hmm. And you need, if, if you've ever tried to shoot a jump shot, you need I like have. tried, <laughs> yeah, yeah, tried mostly unsuccessfully in my case. There's uh, limited upside to our, yeah. our shooting it a little. Yeah, <laughs> you need. It's a hip. It's very much like a core hip shot. And if you watch like the way sh- people shoot nowadays, it's the motion is so much more fluid and off two feet and. I think people can just shoot the ball better because they have more core strength. Whereas back in the day, what the name of the game was is getting as close as you could and being able to control your upper body to be able to have the touch from 12 feet, from 10 feet, from closer. So that strikes me. I can't tell whether it's where they're standing or their skill set that dictates the other. It's But... Like that's the big difference when you talk about body type. Like these, I, I look at a guy like Jerome Kersey for Portland, and I think mm-hmm. to myself, "There's no way that dude could have that body type and play in the NBA today. There's no way." No. Yep, He's like, and that's another team that started. You know that Jerome Kersey started next to Kevin Duckworth, <laughs> you know? and Buck Williams, <laughs> and Buck Williams, who's yeah, and Buck Williams. Like that was one takeaway from watching that game and that team that early. Uh, late 80s, early 90s Blazers team. And like Buck Williams was a, quite a good player. I oh, think yeah. I forgot that. was also at the end of his career, I believe. He was, he was. He was much better prior to that. And he still was probably the best player, arguably, on their team in that game. Clyde struggled in that game. But in general, the the Blazers lose that game because they tried to establish Duckworth, to your point, for basically half the game. And he just was playing terribly. He was missing everything. And that's what got him there, was bully ball in a lot of ways. Um, and the Blazers they started are coming back pretty wide open for their era too. That's the thing. Like yeah. even I mean, yeah. it's just, so it's I can't tell whether again I can't tell whether it's just like like that's the thing that stands out. They're standing 
very different places. The mm-hmm. other big change I notice is also that what to what your point is, like guards are guards. And nowadays, like the transition game is just totally different now than it used to be. And the offense, it used to be back in the day because it was so much more of a trench warfare game. Like they're just sending all these guys to the offensive class and the caroms are all coming much closer. But nowadays, like if in the in an era where anyone can snatch the ball and take off and just go and has those skill, like nobody, nobody's like trying to get offensive rebounds now. And sometimes I watch these old games and I'm like, why the hell are you trying to run in for that rebound? You have no chance at it. It's like going to be a mm-hmm. fast break, you know. Man, crash crash the boards, you know. All follow the, your shots, maybe, shit like that. Yeah, I mean to be fair. The, there's a big difference between the types of rebounds that come from shots that are 12 feet and in and the types of rebounds that come from, you know, 24 footers. And, and I think maybe that moved more people closer to the basket from a rebounding standpoint, mm-hmm. just spitballing here. Um, just transition I mean, play has just become so it, much more sophisticated now. Totally. It used to be 100%. just like, you know, you do the three man weave and you run the lane and, you know, you, you push now is like, there's, there's an art to how Milwaukee runs the break and like, you know, you got to stand like in those boxes on the deep in the court and you have to get a certain number of people back and build a wall and come out. And I, that's the other big difference I see. Mm-hmm. No, totally, totally. And, and, and I wanted to, I want to use this as a way to, well, first off, I think we can put a pin in right now, which is to say that like, yes, the game was a much more, uh, uh, it was less, um, trying to think of fluid in terms of skill sets there was much more of an identity to a power forward and a center and it was Mm -hmm. specifically we should say this is an era when teams were built around a center right i mean if the name of the game is to yes trench warfare you want the biggest you want the biggest biggest guy guy. that's right and and the name of the game plus the physicality around the game facilitated that it almost didn't make sense to build around someone who if and when they went to the basket could just get wiped out yeah and you saw that i mean the last dance did a great job so far of highlighting just how much punishment jordan took in the 80s and i don't think anyone is you know forgot that the 80s were super physical we've all seen the highlights of dr j you know choking larry bird and we know what the pistons were, were known for and what made them successful among other things um but i do think it's it's not lost that in an era defined by bigs uh specifically we'll call it almost a 15 20 year i mean what bill walton won in 1977 I mean, you could argue that, is that big right? man has been the most important you could argue that big men have been the most important yeah. position in the league it's until 2010 ish yeah when when, White, did, when did the lakers year? win their last title um under 10. Phil? yeah 2010 ish yeah. yeah i mean yeah. it's not that different from what's happened in football with the running back position that's interesting so the center in in basketball is the running back yeah, I get that. I get that. Yeah, that's right. There's a couple premier centers still in the league who have very unique skill sets. That's basically the same with an NFL running back. Now you can't just be a bruising running back. You have to be a kind of a, a, trick, a jack of all trades. Um, I like that analogy. And, and I want to use this as a way to ask you about – because one thing that stood out to me is not just the role players, the Buck Williams of the world, the Kevin Duckworths we've talked about, is that even stars from that era – I want to get your opinion on what they would be today. I'm not I'm just, just saying stars from an era, multiple time all-stars. I'm saying like top 50 greatest players of all time. And, and there's a few who stood out to me in watching this. And I'm not going to say if I think they would kill it today and be one of the best players in the league. Or if you might be thinking about them more as a six man. Um, or even someone who just would never have attained. And again, 
attributing things like modern science, nutrition, yeah, I mean, uh, that, all the things that we have to. Because that's, that's the thing that makes it tough because, you know, again, like body types are just so different now. For sure. But like, so I want to start with a guy who I've already mentioned a little bit of and uh, Clyde Drexler. Okay. Clyde is a guy who feels so time capsuled to me in not just his skill set. Uh, and his athletic ability, which is to say that Clyde played, I think, four years at Houston. And by the time he got to the NBA, he was a man, uh, albeit a younger man, but a man. Now, there was no one year of college or one and done situation. And he peaked his athleticism in the 80s. But people know him best for the 90s, for the early 90s, I think, for the top Portland teams, at least for the first three years. And then ultimately the championship that he does get to win with the Rockets where he is old <laughs> like, yeah what, decidedly not very good but what do you what are your thoughts on Clyde Drexler from watching all the blazers you have and what would his game be today what, what, what does Clyde weird, translate what a weird player totally. <laughs> he's, just, he's got a very quirky strange little game what did Michael Jordan say about him like he was a threat but he wasn't really a threat yeah yeah he was just one of those guys who was that Jordan recognized was pegs below him but still a good player so he had like one of the he had that weird jump shot right where he's like basically what is he like spreading his legs wide kicks and like him, yep, kicking kicks them together up. like mm-hmm. it looks really weird but it kind of worked like he was a pretty good three-point shooter um there i mean he this is gonna sound like a weird comparison but watching him i feel like he would he he would have played a lot like someone like manu ginobili hmm interesting they've got like this quirky strange way of moving I think it would work, first of all. Like, I think it's very... I, I don't know if I agree that, like, Drexel was was time-capsuled. Um, I think to steal... You don't think he was, like... Okay, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, what is, the Ringer has got this thing called the Time Machine All-Stars, um, who would have dominated. <laughs> you know, I'm not sure what he would be. I think he would be more of a Manu type. Like, the, I mean, ultimately, the big, the big difference between today and yesterday is that... Pick and roll is replaced the post up as like the primary means of drawing right. through the ball, but it, that's still the name of the game is to draw through the ball. Drexler wasn't really a great pick and roll player. He kind of was. Uh, I mean, it's really hard to describe how they used him. Like he's a very <laughs> strange type of player. I mean, Terry Porter did so much with the ball handling, but I suspect that nowadays. Drexler's sort of quirky athleticism and ability to kind of go side to side would be more valuable than mm-hmm. it was then. I mean, he had some of these moves and finger rolls that just like are impossible. His footwork was very unique and strange. He shot a lot of threes. I bet he could have become a better passer. I don't think he was the greatest isolation player. In some mm-hmm. ways, I think he actually might have fit pretty well in the modern era. Um, but then yeah, that's he, interesting. But then again, he was also a bad passer. So I think if <laughs> like I don't like. I don't think he would play like the first thought I had was he'd be like DeMar DeRozan, but I don't think they would play at, at all the same way. Yeah. So I, I also actually, ironically here, I had DeMar DeRozan as a interesting comp, sort of a, a guy we think of as an offensively gifted player before any other component of their game. And I think it's important to note, too, that like Clyde still averaged five and a half assists and six boards a game, 20, 20 points a game, six boards, five assists, two steals for his career. That's a it's pretty impressive. It's a strange um, thing, right. though, because he's not yeah. like Jordan, like a post-up. You wouldn't like he doesn't have like a go-to play. He didn't. They didn't really throw the ball to him and say, "Go get a bucket, Clyde." He no, just sort and of, there were always three bigs sitting in the lane, clogging up his space that he right. would have slashed into. Yeah. <laughs> and again, this was one of the more open teams in the league, right? Right. <laughs> um, right. But like, uh, he wasn't really like that type of player, even though like. 
I think that's why he doesn't look as impressive as some of these other guys. Like, you know, Jordan, yeah. it's very obvious what he would do. That's why I feel like his role would be something very different. He would be more of – I think also he would be a little undersized to play the two these days. How tall is he? He's like six seven. He's fine for that. But is his wingspan wide? I feel like he looks small. Clyde, I I think it's the mustache. No, I'm just Maybe. kidding. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, he, he Clyde's a, a decently sized dude, and he was obviously, you know, uh, in an era where you're playing a wing like he was six seven, and his heightened athleticism helped. Um, but again, it's a slashing athleticism. I, I never watch Clyde, and I'm like, oh. I think maybe this is why his nickname was Glide or whatever, but like he doesn't look like he's really trying as hard and he's kind of he ice skates a little bit on, around the that's court. A re- that's a really good way to describe it. He is he's kind of mm. like an ice skater on the court. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's a really right. good way and, to describe it. That's why I thought of Ginobili at first. Yeah, and you know what? Ginobili's in that bucket too. That's that's interesting. So maybe there's like some adaptation that occurred that uh, you know that Harden almost has some bits of um in how he gets around. There's a whole footwork component to Clyde's game that was definitely Clyde had the steps ready. Uh, many many years before people were really focusing yeah. on how to maximize his steps to the hoop. Um, yeah, if he if he was playing today, he'd have a killer euro step. Yeah, for sure, for right, sure. There's so, no question about it. So he's an interesting so he's, one. He's an interesting one. I have others here that I want to ask you about that aren't maybe necessarily as transferable. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna go to Sean Kemp because I know you just finished watching a ton of Sonics and you've watched a lot yeah. of them. They're they're a very seminal team of the '90s. I think not just because they're cool uniforms, which they they had multiple iterations of cool uniforms. The fact that they're no longer a Seattle franchise, so there's a relic component to them. The way they defend, um, the, oh, way they defended, the way they defended, the way that they were brash and the people loved. The, the I think the the, the lore of uh, the 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 way we think about and remember Gary Payton and Kemp is as these disruptors to the 90s style of basketball. And I think you've hit on that in a few ways defensively, but I yes. want to talk about the whole, you know, the whole of Sean Kemp and, and what he meant to the to the Sonics. So what are your thoughts on Kemp? And then bring that into what you've been, uh, you know, writing about and researching for the defensive style that he was obviously a big part of. Yeah, I would say he wasn't the biggest part of it. I mean, the guy defensively, that the guy I think is like just would have been so great in this era and forever underrated is Sam Perkins. Oh, 100%. It would he have sticks been, out when you watch the Lakers highlights too, man. Yeah, he he's like what Al Horford was back in the day. It's a very similar type of player, I think. He's a much better shooter, though. Like, Al, three-point shooter, three-point shooter. Is Al's he, not I mean, a good three-point shooter. I think Al was for a while. I don't know how good Sam mm-hmm. – I think we think of Sam as just a three-point shooter, but I'm thinking like, like the 93, 94 version yeah. of him was kind of just learning. Anyway, Sean Camp. Like, yeah, it, it is a little tricky to see like kind of what – he would do in the modern game. I think the modern game is not so kind to the sort of leaping athletic straight fours that are probably a little They're in today's game. They'd probably be four and a halfs. Yeah. So, yeah. It's not, they're not so kind to, to that type of player. Um, but at the same time, he is also kind of this grab and go demon from back in the day where he would, you know, the, the obvious comparison is Blake Griffin, but I don't, I think Blake Griffin was a better passer than he was like Blake Griffin could, can play make in a way that that I don't think Sean Kemp ever could. Agreed. You know, I almost wonder if like he's kind of plays he would play a little bit more like Pascal Siakam today. Uh, hmm. Again, not See, as skilled, not as quirky, but I I just yeah. the sort of six nine skinny like sort of coast to coast dude. He's got kind of the is the jumpers look somewhat similar. 
Uh, yeah, the, the jumper is ugly but effective. I mean, Kemp was yeah. a pretty decent jump shooter Very despite good. the fact it was sort of a line drive from the right side of his of his head. And just uh, the, the weak side ability, the weak side movement and speed. I mean, he. Mm-hmm. You're all good. Uh, I can hear you better now. Okay, there we go. Yeah, it, it, you watch Kemp on like kind of the weak side flying in for these blocks and covering all these different guys and feeling like he's at 70 different places on the court. You wouldn't <laughs> think of Kemp as that kind of dis- dis- disruptor that Siakam was, but I think they kind of played in a similar way. You know, Perkins. So can you compare that? Can you compare what Siakam does? And I know you've written about Toronto's defense as well. The, the, the phantom defense, you call it? Or Haunted House. Defense? Haunted House. That's what it is. Yeah. Um, can, you, can you give me a little bit more on that, where you see Siakam and how he makes that Toronto defensive engine work? Uh, and by the way, my friends from Toronto, uh, they would tell me it's pronounced Toronto with just an N, no T at the end. Toronto. So I'm going to keep saying that. Yeah, I have multiple friends exactly from Toronto. Same. Toronto, Toronto. Um, I would never have noticed the difference unless you told me. It's pronounced Milwaukee. I forget it. Um, so, um, yeah, but so I love you. Give me a little bit more of that, Mike. Tell me a little bit more about Siakam does for the Raptors and sort of how you can uh, extrapolate that to what, you know, Kemp made for what I also want you to tell me about, which is what made this defensive juggernaut of the Sonics and what made them so special in their era. Yeah, I mean, Siakam is kind of the ultimate freelancer, right? He's just kind of flying all everywhere, you know. There was a stat that uh, I remember uncovering for that piece that he had closed down on by far the most number of three-pointers of hmm. anybody in the league. You know, That's most of the people at the top of that list are guards or right, straight right. wings. But Siakam just – it seems like he's kind of just constantly running and contesting. It almost looks like he's all too wild and all over the place. Like, dude, you have to play more solid. But the defense is sort of built – around his ability to roam and fly and do all that stuff. And, you know, if you watch the Sonics, it's it's somewhat similar to how Kemp defended. I think Kemp was maybe a little bit more solid and not maybe a little less hyperactive. He obviously, mm-hmm. because of the way the game, the floor was spaced, he didn't have as far to go <laughs> as, as Siakam does. But, I mean, this is where I the, the Kemp-Perkins dynamic. Perkins was, I think, very much playing in the role that sort of Marcus Saul type player that could or Horford that sort of ate up space and could kind of cover a number of different people and be the solid one that would free Kemp up to kind of fly in for some of those snatched rebounds and weak side shot blocks and that led to the break. That's why the comparison made immediate sense to me. I think mm. offensively their skill sets are, are kind of different, but I'm not sure offensively if Kemp would have been a great fit in this day and age. But defensively, that's what first reminded me of, and then the transition play. And so, okay, so then, what did he? What is the essence of that Sonics defense? Without giving away too much, um, or I mean, the piece I'm, is you know, live. I, you can see it. Yeah, the piece is the right, So again, I, but I want people to want people to read that and not just listen to the podcast. Although I guess yeah. you're going to find all this in one place anyhow, so it can't be it can't be that bad. Uh, the Sonics about, like. Wh- yeah, the Sonics defense stood out in their era for being different. And the assistant coach, who I know you're going to talk about here too, Bob, is the Bob you know, Kloppenberg, the yes. Bob what? what was that? Bob Kloppenberg, the SOS Correct. defense. Um, Correct. Now, tell us about that. Yeah, I just it was very much built on the premise that um, defense is a five-man attack of pressure, constant pressure. Players were sort of funneled to certain spots on the floor. They, I think George Carl said at one point that Kloppenberg would double-team Jesus – if it was up to him. 
Uh, mm. You just love to just sort of double team and cause chaos and very much using defense as like a means to create offense. He would think the game as like your offense starts with sort of creating turnovers and rush shots and fast breaks, not mm. starting with your offense and then building your defense out of it. It's sort of counterintuitive and they would just sort of, they'd essentially play zone. <laughs> they basically trap and play zone. And they right. get away with it, even though like blatantly ignoring the illegal defense rules. Right, which were still like a big thing at that time. I, I've yeah. seen some of the, yeah, I mean, I watched a bunch of their games too. The idea is like uh, they were a defensively stout team and their issues came from like the last three minutes of each quarter when the game would slow down and they had a horrible offensive team. They, they, yeah, that was an issue. I, yeah, also I, think, mean, I also think, and one thing I talked about in the piece that is something mm-hmm. that Toronto is going to have to deal with. That's why I, I think it's really interesting to look at the Sonics because mm. so many of the concepts that they play with are just obvious. They like they were one of the first teams to just switch off ball screens because the logic was less confusion, the better. And we want to cause chaos in the opposition, make them mm. feel like they have to break their offense to do something different. And that's a concept that you just see everywhere nowadays. And yep. scram switching, which is like basically you switch on the ball and then someone switches on the backside to prevent the mismatch. That's like something they do all the time with mm. like-minded players. But one of the things that would – there are a couple of things that would happen to them, I think. You know, this was also an era where they were known for flaming out in the playoffs. They did famously they were. in 1994, 1995. Um And one of the things that would happen is that teams would, first of all, get used to them over time. They start to, there's a, their turnovers would go down as the series went on. I think, especially in the Denver series in game one, it would look like Denver couldn't dribble the ball up the floor, but by the end of the series, they had kind of gotten used to it. And I think that took away, not only just to your point, offensively, they weren't the greatest, they took away their ability to quick strike, which took away a significant portion of their scoring ability because they couldn't necessarily generate it on their own. And then the other thing that would happen beyond getting used to it is that obviously this is a high-risk defense, right? Mm -hmm. You're leaving Mm -hmm. openings. So when you play better teams that can move the ball better, they're going to get more open shots. And even when they don't, and this is a problem that Toronto has this year, they leave themselves vulnerable to offensive rebounds because they're all switched up in cross-match. They're basically gambling right. that if they get the ball, they'll confuse you more because your 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 matchups are all screwed up. That, But the, in return, they may, it makes it easier for them to get offensive rebounds. So mm-hmm. those things, you know, in the playoffs, like those teams would be able to move the ball better and get more offensive rebounds and – that tends to be the type of thing that better teams can do. And I think that would have mm-hmm. been a major problem for Toronto. Um, yeah, yeah. Whereas last, I mean, year, so obvi- mentioned- last year, obviously, Toronto had Kawhi Leonard to give them their half-court scoring. This year, they don't really have that. It's all entirely sort of starts with the transition, and that's how they get most of their points. So, I mean, I, yeah. I do worry that as the as you play better teams in the playoffs and kind of spot and get used to your style of play, it will be harder for them to execute this. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I, look, that 1994 series they lose uh, in the first round to Denver, not only was that not a great a great Denver team like at all, it, but no. they were built perfectly to stop the pretty weak offense that, that the Sonics had in the half court, which is Matumbo, he, he set the single uh, series record for blocks in a five-game series. Yeah, he was incredible. So they're, they're the, the other incredible. hidden factor... They everything right at him. Yeah, yeah, the other hidden factor is Robert Peck was... Robert gave Pack him the second so good. gave him a second ball handler to break their pressure 
Yes. Uh, and Robert I think that dominated game five too. Dominated. Yeah. And I, I don't think the Sonics were really ready for him because he didn't play a ton in the regular season. So the fact that they had him to sort of push the ball against pressure and take advantage of it, like, because a lot of teams in this era, like, if you watch like the Sonics play a team like uh, Houston or Utah, those are two of the teams they play a lot at this time. I mean, those are very slow down, half court, dump the ball inside teams. So if they kind of created broke pressure, they would just sort of reset and start over again and in a way that's kind of what the sonics wanted you know peyton would be way up on stockton way up on kenny smith and it would just throw they wouldn't have the sort of ability to ad lib and push ahead right denver had robert pack and that's what he did and he was yeah robert pack is an athlete who'd still be a a plus athlete today i mean he's he's a little monster and he could fly and on top of that uh uh Chris Jackson, uh, was he? No, he wasn't. Uh, he, he, yeah. he was. He'd he'd, be, he'd change his name. He had a. Uh, I don't recall him having game. a great series. Um, I think you know, I think he was bad p- in that game. He in, in, he was bad in the series. And in Game Five, he lost a bunch of his minutes to Pack. I mean, essentially, Lafonso Ellis and Pack were everything on offense, and Dikembe was everything on defense. Yeah. And he had six blocks or something in that Game Five. They funneled everything towards him, but he he made Kemp obsolete. Uh, in that game and Ellis dominated um, shrimp on the box and like, you know, the Sonic center, the, one of the most sore luck centers in NBA history is Irvin Johnson. You know, he's lost I don't know, how many, two or three different Eastern conference final or, or conference final games uh, in his career. Maybe more. Much? Um, I, I feel like they played Michael yeah, Cage in that yeah. series. Michael, uh, yeah. Yeah. He played a bunch too. I mean, like, the reality what's is that's interesting a 63. Yeah, that was, was a 63 win team. That and was a, a better than 19 Sonics. And I think a better than <laughs> that team. Like I, when I did the the title list yeah. thing, the last thing for estimation, a lot of people asked why didn't yeah. you put the 96 team in? You know, by 96 they were more top heavy and probably mm-hmm. better offensively because they had Shrimp had a really good year. They had Hersey Hawkins who was kind of a more of a shooter whereas Kendall Gill was more of a slasher. Kendall Gill by the way had an amazing year in 94. People don't He did. Kendall I mean, Gill was killer that year. They were more traditional at that point with like a point guard, a two, a three, whereas the 94 team was like kind of five athletes very much of the time. Yeah. I mean, even Shrimp was, I think, a little quicker than he was given credit for. I mean, Kendall Gill was basically a combo guard. Peyton was basically a combo guard. So was Ricky Pierce. I mean, he'd be, in, he'd be their shooting guard or whatever they bring yeah, off the bench. He, yeah. I think one one thing is they traded McKee, Derek McKee, for Shrimp, which made them worse defensively, but it got made up because Kendall Gill emerged and took out Pierce was their worst defender in the past. They didn't need Pierce's scoring as much because of Kendall Gill's emergence. Oh, that team was so great. I mean, it's interesting that, that um, they couldn't, for whatever reason, Perkins' ability to spread them out didn't affect Denver as much as it affected a lot of the other teams that they played. I think yeah. they would, they put Kemp on, they quit the Kemby on Kemp a lot, which I think kind of messed up some of what Seattle did. Yeah, yeah, and that Nuggets team again—they were almost oddly built to play against that Sonics team. I mean, they had, I, I believe they 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 beat them twice in the regular season too. <laughs> so there you go. I mean, like I, uh, Mahmoud Abdul-Roof did not have a good series, by the way. And that Nuggets team—I should t- also tell you—they had Reggie Williams was a six-year veteran on that team. No one else on that entire Nuggets team was even past their fourth year in the league. Mm-hmm. It was a really young Nuggets team playing a pretty. Pretty veteran Sonics team. I mean, some of the best players in the Sonics were still young. That's a time. I would say the Sonics are pretty young too. I mean, yeah. I mean, they had you know Ricky Pierce, uh, Sam Perkins was in year nine, Michael Cage in year nine, 
Nate McMillan in year seven, Schrempf in year eight. They had some veterans for sure. It's honestly, it's a pretty. I would nice say mix the three best time. players were young. Yeah, that's right. And at that point, because I don't remember how old Kendall Gill was at that that year. Yeah, I mean, also important to remember that at that time, um, you know, Gary Payton really wasn't a very good shooter or offensive player. Yeah, I mean, he yeah. became. Obviously, that wasn't what we know Gary Payton for, but he becomes a much better, uh, more consistent shooter later in his career, um, which he really wasn't at that point. Um, all right, we spent a good amount of time on the Sonics. Well, I want to keep this pod decently short, so there's only two guys left I want to talk about. One small, one big, both on the Dream Team. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so they can't be bad. Um, what's Stockton look like in today's game? John Stockton. Uh, it's... It's hard to imagine him in today's game. I'm sure he would adapt because just their system was so retrograde. <laughs> it was so everything below the free throw line, zillion cross screens for Malone. When that failed, tight pick and roll on the side. That was <laughs> they had the most rigid. Like they were sort of the inverse Sonics, and in that like kind of their style of play. I think also worked against them in the playoffs because it was predictable, but in a totally different way. Mm-hmm. Um, eventually I think they kind of added some more pieces and figured out some things, but I mean, I think that's one reason why I guess the jazz did okay in the playoffs, but that was always one of their knocks is that they were just, uh, it was a regular season type of team. Well, they underachieved for a long, people forget the jazz were a competitive, whatever, 50 plus win team for a while before they lose to the bulls twice. Yeah, but um, they did have, okay. So they made the conference finals in 92 and 94, 94, mm-hmm. they uh, got benefited from the Sonics. Ninety and ninety six, they also go one game from the finals. So I think they mm-hmm. overachieved there. It's really ninety five. That's the year that got away because that's the year they lost to Houston in the first round. They blew a seven mm-hmm. point lead in Game Five on their home floor. Um, yeah, I, I just yeah. I don't think any guard would play like Stockton did back in the day. I mean, he. I mean, the, there's just not a guard that would. That system would never happen. I don't think. <laughs> I mean, yes, um, that's correct. And by the way, that that Rockets team, we should say that's this is the ninety four ninety five season. This is not the that's not the the good Rockets team. The the year right. before the Rockets were like a much better, and they were the one seed maybe or two seed, two and seed beyond Seattle, two two seed behind the Sonics maybe the year before, and then they were like the seven seed or something this year. They were so. the seven six seed. Fun fact about the Rockets: so their point differential was half as was half as much as Seattle that year. Gives you a wow, sense of how big a favorite Seattle was. And I think, damn. again, maybe it would have not translated the playoffs because their style of play was so weird on a 82-game basis. But, like, there's no sure. question who the best team in the league was that year. None. Yeah. No, 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 none whatsoever. And I think that, again, that's part of the lore of your title of series you did is there were lots of teams you identified who were the best team in the league. And that's not to say that the best team isn't the team that wins the championship. That's, that is the result that defines the best team in any given season right. in totality. But there are some incredible teams lost to history because that title wasn't a part of the way we talk about them. And ironically, I'm going to make a quick aside right now on the Stockton because as I look, and I mentioned to, this to you as I watched some of their games uh, over the course of the last month, but I think that Rockets team specifically the 94-95 Rockets team, would have been quite good in any era. I think they were built to be a good team because yeah. I think uh, projecting Olajuwon today, he'd be a 35% three-point shooter. Yeah, Olajuwon <laughs> would be an absolute beast. Monster. It'd be It'd like be if a, Joel Embiid uh, was in shape. Well, and, and like 
a significantly more agile human. Yeah, like, like he'd be in not shape. to be lost Again, on Akeem. He'd be in well, shape. <laughs> there's, no, I'm, I'm trying to troll even, you a little bit. Here. Don't do it, Mike. Don't do it. Okay, yeah. you don't know what you don't know what Joel looks like right now. Okay, none of us do. He could be tap dancing every day for all we know. Um, but I will say this: Hakeem tap dances every day, all the time. I know that every day, all the time. <laughs> and that that team had. Um, that team had some guys who just, you know, look, young Robert Ory, people Oof. should go look back. Everyone knows him as like hitting open threes for great teams later in his career. He was an absolute monster. Defensively, he was a, guy, a hell of a player. He was tremendous, dude. And he's a timeless, you know, size. Talk about a spacing big. I mean, he he did everything. Sam Cassell was a baby in his uh, second year in the league. And, you know, he's a guy who had the most confidence. And actually, and it's just funny, they needed him because at that point, Clyde, it was like in year 11 or 12 or something like that. And just kind of a shell of himself. You had a bunch quite, of guys who came was, from. He was past his prime. I wouldn't say he was a shell of himself. You know, it's funny. Is oh, guess the team right. that always gave the Rockets trouble in that era. Who was? Seattle. Because oh, Seattle what? Seattle just makes sure that they couldn't just run the run the game through right. Akeem. Akeem's mm-hmm. shot attempts were always down against them. It's interesting. So, yeah, that team was good. I, I, Stockton's funny to me, man, because. He's a great shooter, you know, an all-time shooter, um, and that that's a transferable skill into a game now where there's a much, much more of a, an open, um, you know, whatever the right term is, a green light, if you will, for guards to have shot, have threes. He obviously he played an era where the three-point line was a little bit more elastic, went in and out from how long it was, uh, and some of his best three-point shooting years, like most people in the '90s, occurred when the line was like a high school gym now uh, <laughs> which is uh people forget that actually that happened in the middle of the 90s three uh, years i believe from yeah, 95 to 97 that's correct i think that's exactly right um 94 95 season through the 96 97 season and mm-hmm. so um yeah and so three-point line was closer i think stockton's a guy who would have i think there are so many guards today like i think a fred van fleet I think of guys who were just super creative with their body, who could play any pick and roll game, who could pull up and shoot threes, who tremendous decision makers. Stockton was a, you know, obviously is one of the best, statistically speaking, uh, guys steals in NBA history, and part of that is counting numbers are always favorable to guys who play for 20 years at a high level. Um, yes. But uh, you know, Stockton for sure, I think would be would still be a a very good player in this league. I think guys like Mike Connolly, who aren't unbelievable athletes but think the game at a really good level, a really high level. Um, I think Stockton fits into that mold. I also think he is a better athlete than maybe we remember giving him credit. That- I, see, I, I go the other way. I think he would. I don't think yeah. he would fit in as well today because he was such a reluctant shooter. Well, yeah, but that's what I'm saying. Like in a world where the green light on point guards to shoot threes is, you know, but do you think he? But do you think he would just suddenly like launch away? Like I just don't think some of that is a mentality thing. Like I just don't think he would. He would embrace that style. I think he'd always be wondering, like, come on, man, shoot the ball more. So he attempted 1.5 three-point attempts a game in his career. 1.5. I mean, what was his <laughs> what were his usage rates? So, I mean, he also like for a guy that had so many assists, he gave the ball up a lot. Yeah, <laughs> you know, sure. he was spending a lot of his time like. So, yeah, I don't think that. <laughs> like, I don't like the the closest comparison I can think of is someone like a Chris Paul. But Chris Paul is a much more aggressive shooter than even John Stockton was. I think that's yeah. really your best hope is he turns into a, a taller version of Paul. But you know, John Stockton never never really loved that mid that kind of mid range pull up game. No, that was no, never right. a huge he, part of his game. His highest usage rate for any specific single season was nineteen ninety nineteen eighty nine nineteen ninety season. 
His usage rate was 20.6. The next year it was 20.9. The two years they lost to the Bulls in the finals, 18.4 and 19.3. I mean, that's tiny. Do you? There are not a lot yeah, of point no, guards right. who right. have who are really good players. You can't be a great player if your usage rate is a great <laughs> offensive point guard. If you use know is that low, I mean, what what was Kyle Lowry's? I mean, I guess that's the other, that's another possibility. But Lowry, I mean, Stockton wasn't like this great mover off the ball. I mean, I guess that's the other guy that maybe yeah. that maybe Stockton could become is a is someone sure. like that. Um, so you know what's impressive? He played from 1984, his 85, his rookie season, to uh, 1996-97 season. He played all 82 games every year, except for once where he played 78. Like, he played a decade full of games without missing any in what we everyone considers this unbelievably physical era and what we just said, which is they used Stockton to set more screens on bigs off ball than probably any guard in his era. Like, th- there's <laughs> that's the type of shit that I really like. I'm, I'm thinking to myself, that's a transferable skill the ability to kind of you know See, i would argue a, that's not a transferable skill because that the <laughs> the stuff that is sort of measured there is more yeah. trench warfare than speed hmm. yeah sure i mean it's trench warfare availability a lot of people think is the best ability um but you know but, that's i mean the even the stuff there. he was doing like you're saying like yeah hey, he was getting beat up all the time yeah and trench warfare's terms but he wasn't well, running think, around as much as like some sure. of these players that do now i think maybe well, again he was taking a lot more of it in the upper body but i think he was putting sure. a lot less stress on his lower body and his core well that's everyone and that's one of the reasons why the size of the athletes to your point earlier was what it was he didn't have to have cardio champions right so. if, if he, he played today he'd have torn things. his acl in his third year <laughs> He might have, man. He might have. I mean, again, I don't I don't like doing the whole like guys who played now, if they played back then, they would have got beaten up like like Bill Ambeer would have wanted to go, you know, try to take LeBron's knee in his face because LeBron is 30 pounds heavier than him in the same height, um, you know, or whatever. Funny, funny thing about Bill Ambeer is the ultimate stretch five. <laughs> I think I've had this conversation with my dad. I think Lambeer would be a good player in today's game. There's like of the smarter you are as a big in today's NBA, the better you fit in because it means you're going to be a more willing passer and a better team offensive player. And back then, bigs were basically the focal point of an offense. You didn't have to be as intelligent about how you played team basketball. Watch Pat Ewing and, and David Robinson play in the early 90s. And like they don't have to think much past when the ball gets to their hands in the post. And that's not to hit either of them. They're both, I think... Jason would be a absolute monster in today's game because he did have a pretty one game. Yep. Well, you wanted but to I, talk about Patrick Ewing, right? That was the last I, guy you wanted I to talk to say, about. Here's my segue. Pat Ewing was my last person I wanted to ask you about. Um, so I, I like grouping those two together because I think they're fairly uh, – they're not exactly the same. I mean, Ewing was a better shooter. I think Robinson was more athletic. But they're both sort of these bigs that – I, I would not say they were necessarily known for their passing or agility out of the post, as opposed to someone like Hakeem, who mm-hmm. just had so much more skill facing up. You know, they. I think that they that would be the challenge with with Robinson. I think they both have the bodies for today, but I don't know how the hell they'd ever get the ball. I mean, I think Ewing would probably be more of a. Like I look at Ewing as sort of in the same way, maybe he'd play a lot like Brooke Lopez does mm. nowadays. Mm-hmm. 
you know, where he did have that great post-up game that has been sort of refitted around his great shooting for his size. And it looks weird that he's shooting threes, but he's, and defensively, he would have been an incredibly valuable player. You know, that makes a little more sense. Robinson, I, I mean, he was a great player and he seems like he has athleticism, but I'm, I'm struggling to see like how he would ever get the ball in the post now would he just be a would he just play pick and roll and dive to the rim all the time you know that sounds like someone that's really valuable but i'm not sure i mean i feel like even that style player is starting that was a big time type of player in 2013 but i don't know if it Mm -hmm. is in 2020 yeah i think i think of him as a lot you know this is probably not an organic thought at all but like when dwight was peaking in 2009 2010 Mm -hmm. um that reminds me of a peaking early 90s David Robinson. Yeah, I think and that's a good comparison. Not scoring champion, right? Not scoring champion Robinson even. I mean, like, I'm talking like 20, however he was when he got into the league um, after his stint in the Navy. Um, I'm going to say Ewing was like 23 or 24 his rookie year. Yeah. So just like, again, important for people to remember that like ages are just, uh, yeah. I mean, Robinson played his rookie year at 24 years old. How old is Bradley Beal right now? Uh, that's a good question. Isn't he like still only 26? I think that's something. That's right. Yeah. I, mean, I know he's he's younger. The point is, like, he's 26 years old, right? Bale's been in the league. It feels like the entire yeah, time tw- I've known you. 20. He's turning. Right. He's turning 27 at the end of June. So yeah. Right. I mean, that's so crazy. These guys came into the league, you know, with a with a pretty not just that they're men, but they came in with identities. Are the builds to be? Robinson came into the league in 89, 90, and averaged 24 points a game. You I mean, know, obviously, 24 and 12. I mean, obviously, <laughs> Dwight's still playing now. So I mean, it's yeah. a, the year that the 2009 run that you're talking about um mm-hmm. they he was 23 that year there you go there you go I mean, that's, so i've been late i've been late for five years yeah i mean robinson <laughs> had more perimeter quickness than howard did i mean i think howard was probably mm-hmm. more dominant on the boards robinson i think was pretty agile but i i just don't know if I mean, you see the kind of player that Howard is, and he's having a great bounce back here in a really yeah. specific role that is very, very specific, limited. Yeah. Like, who around – what teams around the league have a player starting at the five that plays anything like what Robinson could be unless he became a shooter? Like, Yeah, no, I mean, the answer is no, no, but I mean, of the good teams? <laughs> I mean, really like, any team. I mean, I, I mean, is there someone I'm missing? Hmm. No, I mean, I don't, I don't, I can't think off the top of my head of a team that's starting uh, a big like Robinson. Uh, but again, there's very few like that in the league. I mean, how many teams are even, would you even say, have a center that's like a focal point of their team? The the Nuggets, Sixers. I mean, Giannis is a center, right? Well, <laughs> so, I mean, right? Jokic like, is, is like, I think, evolved Arvidas. That's the guy that. Yeah, he plays sure, like, and I mean, sure. Jokic is just—I mean—he defies positioning. I mean, because everyone now does. That's the point. All the, yeah. the NBA's best players now, we don't even have positions for. And, I guess and everyone we've talked about has been like Stockton is the picture of the point guard from the '90s. David Robinson yeah. and Ewing are the pictures. Right? Kemp is the power forward we know of the '90s. Yeah, it's One weird. Of them, obviously, I mean, I guess I guess if like Rudy Gobert had more offensive skill, he might be playing like Robinson. But yeah, even that is like. I mean, that's a reach. I just, I, I, I could see like him having the same level of agility in the pick and roll with just a little more offensive skill. But like, I mean, Robinson's career is just, and again, accolades are so because there is a whole, you know, the, look in the '90s, mid '90s, NBA expansion, um, the, the watering down of the overall 
I think depth of the depth of the league was on full display as I watched some eight one games and stuff. And like, look, the Nuggets uh, pulling off an eight one upset when they did was even more spectacular because that was like a forty two win Nuggets team. Right. And ultimately, if you were the eight seed and won the conference, you probably were pretty bad because the top, even the top teams, like the four five seeds in each conference, weren't particularly strong. The watering down of the nineties um, once the expansion era kicks in too so, is extreme. Is so extreme. you think that's true? Um, I mean, I, yeah, I do. So I do. like, oh in man, nine- for sure. In 1997, mm-hmm. the number four seed was the Dikembe Mookie Blaylock, Steve Smith, Atlanta Hawks. They won 57 games. Okay. Are you telling me that that team was not as good as the – who was the four seed in the East last year? I should know this. Um, like Boston or Indiana or even Philly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the, the no, I mean, I don't. I, that I mean, that Hawks team, team was, pretty, was pretty, pretty good, though. That's a pretty good team. That's also come on. That's that's. I'm looking at the, the same four seed in the West that year was Sha- was it Shaq Lakers. What I, think you're, what I think hey, you're, what I think you're talking the four seed in the oh, league the that yeah, was the first yeah. year of Shaq and the Lakers. I think what you're talking about is more like kind of not the four seed level, but maybe at the um, eight eight nine ten. Yeah, level. I think that's better. I mean, because even I mean, look, the the same year we're talking about the six seed Minnesota Timberwolves in the West were forty and forty two. The six seed was I mean, under five hundred in the West. That's, yeah, what was the six seed in the East? <laughs> six seed in the East. Yeah, like forty one, forty Hornets. Hornets were fifty four and twenty eight. That's mind you, eh, that's a pretty good team. That Hornets team was pretty solid too. This again is it might just the be, East was way better. The East it might was just really be a good in the conference. 90s. Yeah, Sorry. that's the thing. <laughs> You know, that's a this this Hornets team actually was kind of a killer a killer squad in a weird way. Um, they had some fun players on it. They had a, a, a Vladi Divac who had just been um, yeah, Anthony Mason um, traded there. Yeah, yeah, weird Glenn Rice, weird Rose. My name's Malik. Don't forget it. Drexel's finest. Um, yeah. So anyhow, Glenn Rice. That's squad. a dude that would never fit in today's game. No chance. Rice? No way. Too slow. What position is he playing? Yeah, I think he was kind of a very much skilled at shooting over the top of you. I, I think that's a dude that would not fit in. I don't think in today's hmm. game. I mean, I mean, that's interesting you say it. I think uh, I usually try to think guys who are especially like him, like, like at the top two percent of shooters in NBA history, like would do well. I think shooting's that very transferable. Yeah, but I, he would be what? Like he'd be a spot up role player. Like, do you think he'd be yeah. like? I, do you think he'd be Chris Middleton? I think Chris Middleton would be way better than him. That's the type uh, of player we're talking. Got more about. game, yeah. That's right. That's right. I like, think that's probably right. You know, I I think like like Glenn Rice was an All Star Game MVP. I just think there's no way that he would ever be an All Star caliber <laughs> player today. He was. There's a 96 97 All Star game. The yeah. season we're talking about, which was the year in 96 97, he averaged uh, you know 27 a game. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a that's a lot of points from man Glenn Rice, and that was on uh, about five and a half three point attempts a game. So like, yeah. You know, I guess so. Going back to Robinson, like, is there a yeah. case to be made that he would play like Anthony Davis? Um, yeah, maybe a little bit. I don't. I mean, I think Anthony Davis is a rare example too. Robinson was a big man his whole life. Anthony Davis still projects the point guard abilities that he, you know, basically right. honed in his skill set with. Uh, that makes him so unique. But yeah, maybe something like in that agile big who can move, play defensively on the perimeter, but also be, you know, a th- in David Robinson's case, he had. He had one season in the early 90s where he averaged four blocks a game. 
You know, yeah, and also that's a pretty crazy stat. Yeah, and Again, even, granted, ball was around the hoop more. You know. Right, and, and also Davis. I think even though he was a point guard, he more than the other greats, he sort of needs someone to set him up. I think his, I think that would be the case yeah. with Robinson too. Like I would have a hard time believing that he could play one on one in space in with yeah. like kind of the the shifting defenses the way they are these days. I think Robinson would struggle with that. Davis is probably the one star that. You know, is not great at that relative to other stars, and is still a great player. Yeah, so yeah, that that right. might be the best chance that Robinson has. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I, I have one more I didn't tell you about yesterday. We'll we'll end with this. I want to make sure we, for the, at least this at least this first podcast that we don't uh, make everyone listen to us for an hour uh, and a half. Um, but you know, whatever. Who cares? <laughs> Were you looking at the Mike, time? Your, your fucking name's on it. <laughs> we can curse now. We can do whatever we want and it doesn't back into the mothership that I still work for whose name we will not mention. Um, and that's and that's good. And that's good. So um, um, what was the hey. scene in old school where like, oh, we can curse now and then you just like kind of put a bunch of yeah. was it Will Ferrell was I, like basic. Yeah, I can say the words if I want it, but I won't. Uh, <laughs> After we just said yes. that we can say whatever yes, we yeah, want. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> After we said we can say whatever, I'm going to censor myself. Um, um, so Dennis Rodman uh, is a very interesting player. Mm. And he he has been an enabler for some of the best seasons in NBA history, including David Robinson's arguably best seasons. Rodman facilitated a lot of dirty work on that team. I think he was the NBA leader in rebounding for two or three of Robinson's peak seasons, right. ironically, right next to the, this great big, we just talked about this yes. other guy was the leading rebounder in the league. Um, I think a lot of people make the apt, um, correlation between what he did for these great teams, uh, from the Pistons, even those great Spurs teams, uh, and obviously the bulls, uh, to what Draymond did for the warriors, right. uh, you know, dynasty here in, in the two thousands. And I'm wondering, number one, is that a responsible correlation or, or, or comp? And then number two, your thoughts on Rodman as a transferable uh, player in, in today's game. So I think it is a responsible comp. The thing that's most more interesting to me is like if it's not Draymond Green, who else would it be? Sure, sure. And I don't know that – that I mean you know. I'd be curious what – that this is like an interesting thing to, to bandy about. Yeah. So well, Rodman, I always thought it was like the the Celtics have mul- had multiple guys in their 2008 2009 championship team that were all together. Like if you put Posey and Perkins into a slightly mutated body, that's what they got. Like they had the guys Poskins. Post yeah, uh, yes, that's right. Poskins together was kind of the Rodman. I think a lot of teams have had multiple players equal what Rodman did. Just like a lot of teams have multiple players equal what Draymond. You know, did I think right. I think you could look at the team last year that won the championship in Toronto and say like Siakam gave you peak Draymond, mind you, Draymond who could still take and hit an open three, yeah. not reluctant shooter one, but like last year, something between like what Siakam and um, Ibaka together gave you know the Raptors was what Rodman did in, in one body. So yeah, keep keep rolling on that. If it's if if it's yeah. not, then we're not sure who it is. But what do you is it like your PJ Tucker? Yeah, PJ Tucker's a good one. He's uh, yeah, I like PJ Tucker. He's a poor man's Rodman in a lot of ways. Um, Rodman was way more athletic and way way faster. Oh, yeah. But you know, mm, that's like the kind of player you would you would maybe think about. Um, yeah, it just aren't. How did, yeah, what's what's your thought? I mean, give me give me your full thought on Dennis Rodman. You've watched a ton of the hoops from both his all the teams I just mentioned, all the eras of Rodman, all the hair colors and styles and and uh, you know tantrums, yeah. um, coaching tantrums. Um, also, 
fun note, uh, Popovich was the one who did trade Dennis Rodman to the Bulls. He was the general manager of the Spurs team that traded Absolutely. him. And I Don't that, you remember I he, took his, great. he took his shoes off and that yeah, pissed of off Bob Hill? Dude, he took his shoes off in the middle of the fucking game that he went back in. Yeah, I mean, it's not. Why yeah. is that that big? A, Phil Jackson would just laugh that off. Not. Uh, that it's was not in the Western Conference Finals that, like, sort of they made a big deal out of that. It, yeah, <laughs> just shows how different the organizations were. Um, well, so the thing is, okay, so Robin's obviously most iconic skill is the rebounding. And I would argue that that element of rebounding would not fit in today because I think rebounding in general is kind of on the downswing from that, from bigs because of the way the game is spread out. Like now I bet Robin would adapt and become this amazing long rebounder like Draymond, but I think it would be different. You know, I, I'm sure that today Robin would not get away with not shooting the ball, (laughs) but he probably would shoot a little bit. He was a great passer. I think he would have been an incredible screen setter and incredible, like sort of ad lib type of player. I mean, Draymond is the best comparison, but I mean, I'm trying to think about like sort of if there's a player. He also, I think, Robin would have handled the ball a lot more. He would have been this grab and go mm-hmm. beast. Um, he, he had skills, man. Like, oh yeah, great, definitely ton of skills. Uh, you know, really good skills. Like in a public persona way, it's weird. His off the court antics detracted from how brilliant he was on the court in a lot of public perception. People like yourself who watch the film and NBA enthusiasts who remember the era really well. And again, I'm, I'm 30, almost 34 years old. We're around the same age. Mm-hmm. You know, we remember the nineties. One of the reasons why I think we are more suited to have this conversation is because all of the rewatching we just did. Um, and it did help flood my brain, or I should say, uh, evacuate my brain of the nostalgia. Like, oh, I, I know a player. I know a player that Dennis yeah. Rodman would be, he'd be like Bam out of bio. Yeah, Bam's a good comp for sure. That's a good. That's, that's a good the kind one. of player. Bam's a great athlete be. too. So yeah, that's the um, kind of player. Yeah, that, be. And Bam's, Bam's a really, really, really good player good. who people would love to have on their team, right? So maybe there are more comparisons to Robin. Anyway, I, I cut you off. What were yeah. you saying? No, no, it's all good. It's like I, I removed the nostalgia of the '90s basketball uh, right before or during watching all of these games. Like I, I have a lot of friends still who are steeped in that and are unable to remove themselves from. And again, I've made this comment, I think on Twitter with you and maybe Pelton or something, but like the cool uniforms, the way we think about things like the dream team, what stats actually meant, because at the end of every one of these games you see on the last dance, you see the final score is 83 to 77. So (laughs) I don't know, you know, I I didn't remember that as well as I just kind of remembered the game being a lot slower and a little bit more, physically clogged up in, in kind of the ebbs and flows of right. how it was played. But but Robin's a guy who there's so much to his story and so much of it has nothing to do with basketball that it it did or has, the history has detracted from. And one of the reasons why I think this, you know, this miniseries is so cool, not because it's an infomercial for Michael Jordan, because it's reminded some people about how great Scotty and, and Robin were and mm-hmm. maybe how perfect Phil was to coach these personalities. And that's what I'm really taking away more than how great Jordan was. And that's, you know, pretty obvious to this. Yeah. I agree you know, Ku coach as well, I think, especially by 98. Oh, he was so good. I mean, that, that team Kukoc was, had a really good year in 98. He did. I mean, he had, he had four really good seasons. I mean, Ku coach was a good player. I, I was another guy who probably would be really good in today's game too. I think, I think Ku coach would have been a star if you played for another team. I think he stifled his game a bit to fit in. And then yeah, I sure, think, sure. you know, as, Scotty got older, and as Robin became crazier, they came to rely on Kukoc a lot more by 98. I'm surprised I haven't really talked about that that much. I mean, Kukoc, 
was a I mean the it, I guess they're going to talk about when they get to the Indiana game seven but Kukoc was had a great game then in a lot of ways he was their second or third best scorer mm. but, yeah I mean anyway. I think and I think Jordan and Pippen kind of knew he was also a creator I mean yeah the important thing there is like he could handle he could pass uh, he was and again lefty disruption you know how I feel about lefties but like Lamar Odom he, was a lot like that too Absolutely. Odin absolutely. was probably more of a power player, but similar style of you could put him at the top of your triangle. and Yeah. I mean, Odin would have been a really interesting player today, too. I, I wonder how he would – would he have played like Ben Simmons currently plays? I think Elo is a, 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 a better offensive basketball player than Ben Simmons or was, especially coming out of Rhode Island. Like right. Lamar Odin had the game on his fingers, man, and he really was – like way ahead of his time defensively. I think Ben's in a whole different stratosphere, yeah. but yeah, I mean, Lamar Odin always was a skill set. I just wanted, like, if you could tell me, like I could start with one tool chest of abilities to play basketball. Like I'll be the six foot 10 lefty who could play point guard and has a smooth stroke, you know, like yeah, I think Odin yeah. would have been killer. Um, and to your point, by the way, Kukoc had a really good NBA career. And then, yeah, I mean, he averaged the year after Jordan leaves, he averages 19 a game, you know, that year a before good NBA career. I don't know about a really good. Like, can you remember like anything notable he did after the Bulls run ended? I can't. You're, talk, you're talking to the wrong person. Yeah, yeah, like I, I don't play some horrible hoops for the Sixers in 2000, but that was oh, right. He was yeah, one of those right. guys they brought in as like Iverson's yeah. second scorer, and well, they traded him before, didn't they? Did. Trade him for Matumbo? Yes, he's part of the Matumbo trade with, with uh, Theo. Anyway, so. this has been fun. This has been. And by the way, Kukoc, another guy, just at some point, started in the league at, what, 25 years old or something like that. So, you know, the guys came in more polished. You kind of knew more about what you were getting. And then they stayed more in their place in terms of the positions they, they played and the roles they filled. I think we, we've hit on a bunch of guys who I think, you know, it's open for interpretations. Why is this so fun? It's why even though there's no live basketball, Mike, there's still great conversations to be had. It's a great reason why people should go subscribe to Mike's Substack right now. Mike, what's that again you can find you at? Just uh, uh, MikePreda.substack.com. Substack, S-U-B. Well, actually, if, you, if you're hearing this, you're already subscribed. You're there. Yeah, you're already there. So. Yeah. yeah, that's true. <laughs> so you're already on it. Keep listening. Maybe pay for it. Um, but, you know, other than that. Yeah, $10, uh, a, $10 a month or $100 a year. But if you get in before May 15th, it's half off. Yes, there we go. Do it, everyone. Get in there. Help Mike out. It's also worth it for yourself. Help yourself out. Uh, become a more knowledgeable NBA fan so you can have these kind of conversations with your friends and not say stuff like, uh, you know, Kevin Love is better than Dennis Rodman or stupid shit like that, like my <laughs> friends say, because they're influenced by what they remember better when they were in their late 20s than when they were 10. Um, Kevin and so, Love is anyhow, better than Dennis Rodman. I'll just leave it at this. I think nostalgia is the most powerful, uh, like, thing that can fire off whatever neurotransmitters that, that fire off in your brain and make you feel nostalgia. They cloud your judgment. And I, I hope that everyone who listens to this Take some time because Lord knows there's no NBA going to be on for a few more months. Go watch some 90s basketball. Maybe eventually on Mike's Substack, after you've paid for it, you'll see that he'll have given you this holy grail of YouTube full games that he's curated. I'm lucky to, to be a recipient of that currently. That's why we got to do this podcast in many ways. Uh, and, uh, Mike, <laughs> yeah, we'll see if I put that games. one behind the paywall. So, so on your point about nostalgia before we go, I remember yeah. reading a book once that said like um, – the music that you listen to, like your formative music years are like your teenage years. And once you get past then, you don't tend to change the music you listen to. I think That's basketball right. is a lot like that. 
A hundred percent agree. That's you're right, by the way. You you form your musical tastes when you're you know in your formative years and your early teens, I think, or whatever. Yeah, it's the same way. I mean, I guess for me, we're talking about stuff the '90s that like was like I was ten. But I think for a lot of people, that's the year. That's really what it comes down to is like kind of what that period of your time does it coincide with? It's just like music. Yeah, I just yeah, remember I agree. reading and, that book. I forget what book you know I was what? reading that in. You can like different music than other people, and you can like different styles of basketball. I prefer today's very skilled, uh, positionless game. Um, I prefer the nuance and understanding of analytics and space and, and all the things that have made basketball, I think, advance. If you look at the way the game is played in the 80s, 90s, 2000s, 2010s, and, and, and to where we are now, the leaps that have been made in the last – well, the leaps that the Warriors made the league make – I think have been uh, astronomical in in the time frame, smaller time frame, condensed time frame than where the league went from. What do we say from the from the the beginning of it to when ever centers stopped being the focal point, right? Yeah. And there's little things that changed along the ways, rule changes, three point lines, illegal defenses, zones, things like that. Um, but ultimately. Um, that's my opinion. I'm sure there's other folks who love watching, getting that nostalgia kick, those like little hits of, of dopamine every Sunday night for two hours. I appreciate that too. Um, and, and ultimately like, I'll give you one last guy, Ron Harper, I think would probably be pretty good today. He looks like mm. he's have a big guard who can still probably play younger Ron Harper. I was going to say there, there basically are two Ron Harpers. There's the yeah. <laughs> pre-knee injury Harper with Cleveland and the Clippers. And then there's the Bulls Ron Harper. Yes, pre pre uh, athletic Ron Harper could probably really ball still as a big guard. Um, was he that? Would he be that big for, by standards today? Like he would have been a like he's a big one, but a little. I don't know. Yeah, we can talk about this offline. Yeah. I don't know. For, Who cares? Yeah, for another, Ron Harper is Ron Harper's son. By the way, is how old we are. I watched him play live this year at Madison Square Garden against Michigan for Rutgers. And, uh, that's that's he. Ron Harper's six six. Yeah, that's still a big guard for sure. Yeah, but. I feel like the six five six six shooting guard is that maybe. I mean, I shouldn't say that. I mean, Bradley Beal's basically that size, so maybe I'm wrong. I was gonna say that like it, that kind of a player is going out of style, but it probably isn't. I'm probably just talking hey man, bullshit. everything comes everything comes in circles and waves. So like, there'll be another time when the game will evolve again. Things will keep changing. We'll watch a documentary on the glory days of LeBron twenty years from now, and people will be like. Uh, God, Steph Curry is terrible. Yeah, oh, God. Hey, yeah, Anthony Davis. Look how yeah, skinny Steph he is. Curry, total relic of his time. I mean, how could yeah. he just – John Stockton would be such a better fit in the modern NBA. Yeah, totally. <laughs> how can they let him just shoot it from out there? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why aren't they hurting each other more? All right. Anyhow, by the way, if you watch basketball to see guys like Bill Ambeer hurt the best players on the other team, like, what do you, what do you watch? Go football. watch football. <laughs> go watch football. <laughs> that's what I say. Like, that, that's a great place to end. <laughs> once, once I've alienated half the people listening, then we can end the podcast. All um, right. Cool. Well, hey, this is the Limited Upside Podcast. I'm Ben. That's Mike. Uh, it's just a thrill to be doing this again, and I can't wait to do the next one and the next one and the next one. Uh, everyone go check out Mike's Substack. Yep, we'll be doing this weekly. So we'll do one episode for free each week, and as we go, maybe we'll put some uh, additional episodes behind a paywall. We'll kind of have to figure that out as we go. But um, yeah, very excited. Lovely. Until next time, everybody, this is a Limited Upside Podcast.